Hey ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Mel Herbert here. Look, a uh, very special Elon today and talking Tessa because, you know, we're, we're pretty busy here in the medical community given the pandemic. I haven't had time uh, to do the Tesla show, but uh, on Wednesday night I did an interview with an infectious disease doc about coronavirus. And so I'm actually reproducing it here for you on, in audio form. Now this was uh, two docs speaking to clinicians and as the lay public a lot of this might go over your head but I think you'll also find a lot of it useful so if you want to know what we've been doing uh, we've been busy over there doing the medicine thing this is also available on YouTube and I'll drop a link in the show notes um, so I'm just putting it here because I think some of you might find it useful make sure that you get your medical information from the CDC from the WHO this is changing very rapidly and uh, be very careful about the information you're getting from the politicians that are talking about this because they're often completely wrong. Listen to the CDC, listen to the health experts, uh, not so much the politicians. So uh, be safe, be well, wash those hands. And, uh, you know, we'll get through this. It's going to be a pain in the ass for a while, but we're going to get through it. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Mel Herbert here. Um, thanks for joining us tonight. We've got a very special presentation tonight. Um, we're going to be talking about COVID-19. We've got Dave Talon with us. Um, obviously, there's lots of questions that people have. And um, just a few uh, points before we get much further. Um, there's a lot of people on the stream. The tech's looking pretty good. But if for some reason it sort of crashes on you, come back in about five minutes, go over Shadi, go over WeWe, and uh, we'll reboot the system and start the stream again. Uh, second of all, we have got a... Um, well, first, before that even, a disclaimer. You know, this situation is changing very rapidly. Knowledge is changing very rapidly. Even in the last few hours, I've been sent some new articles that are pre-press about some of this stuff. So even uh, when you watch this uh, tonight, or if you watch the recorded version of this in the next few hours or days, make sure that you're always continuously going back to the CDC, WHO, and local health experts, because it does change constantly. We're not going to be talking too much about how many cases and stuff there are. We're going to be talking about from an ER perspective, uh, what you can do to protect your patients, what you can do uh, to protect yourself. We went live just a couple of hours ago with our own chapter in Corpendium. Uh, so many people, hundreds of people have been asking us to put this into um, Corpendium. So we got that up. Uh, we wrote it internally. We've had it reviewed by a number of ID experts. And we will update that to any new significantly important clinical information um, over sort of at least once a week and more frequently than that if we need to. Again, most of the changes that you're seeing right now, most of the stuff you're seeing on TV is about how many new cases there are. We'll talk a little bit about that, but that's less um, important to us in the clinical areas right now. So let me give you a quick background, and then I'm going to get Dave Talon, professor from UCLA, and uh, we're going to have a little discussion here. So SARS-CoV-2 is the virus, and Corona or COVID-19 is the clinical syndrome, just for the nomenclature, which is sort of the accepted nomenclature right now. We know that these coronaviruses are really common. Uh, they cause the common cold about 20% of the time. They're found in humans, in camels, in bats, in cattle. And um, the thing we think's happened here in Wuhan, China, where you've got these big markets where you've got bats and civets and all of these different animals together and they're getting slaughtered together and lots of viruses transmitted. Um, this is probably where this virus came from and now has infected human beings. Obviously, the spectrum of this disease appears to be from essentially no symptoms, predominantly in kids, up to frank respiratory failure and death, particularly in the elderly, big spikes in mortality over the age of 70 and over the age of 80 and people with underlying lung disease, although this is um, much more mortal than uh, standard flu, so we are going to see younger people that will die of this disease. Incubation period could be up to about 14 days and the infectivity could be up to about 14 days. Dave's going to talk to uh, us about that. These are sort of CDC numbers. They are trying to be very conservative so that if you, you want to uh, quarantine people before and after a possible event, that you make sure you don't send them back into the world uh, before they've finished. Just in terms of um, some of the mortality, actually Dave showed a uh, table like this uh, a couple of weeks ago at UCLA. So for MERS, the mortality was about 34%. For SARS, the first SARS, about 10 years ago, about 10%. Seasonal flu, somewhere around 0.1%. It obviously changes between the flu season. Right now, the mortality for COVID-19 appears to be 2 to 4%, but that is probably 
significantly overstated because we haven't done a lot of testing yet, particularly in the US. So I expect that number will come down, but it'll probably, the experts are telling us, say, stay significantly higher than the 0.1%. I heard a gentleman today, an ID doc from uh, John Hawkins, saying he thinks it's going to be less than 1%, but still probably five to 10 times uh, greater than flu, which is still a big deal. So in terms of trends in the upcoming months, Again, uh, the experts are saying, we don't really know, they think that about half the US will probably become infected, that the mortality will be somewhere around 1%. That means that potentially a million people in the US uh, will die, um, and probably around the same in most other countries. Compare that to a really bad flu season like we had last year with about 80,000 deaths. And a lot of the public health stuff we're going to do, or you're seeing, is to try and flatten this curve. So let me now bring in Dave Tallon to speak uh, specifically about what flattening the curve is, and then we're going to go into much more detail. So Dave Tallon is triple boarded in emergency medicine, infectious disease, and internal medicine. He was the uh, chair uh, at Olive UCLA, and now he's back at UCLA um, working clinically and also still doing ID work. So uh, thanks for doing this, Dave. I know this was really last minute, um, yeah. but uh, a lot of people are really interested in this stuff, as you are aware. So can you first of all tell us um, about what this idea of flattening the curve is? We hear them closing schools schools and closing airports and reducing travel. And even by the time we finish this presentation tonight, we might be hearing of significant travel restrictions from Europe. What does flattening the curve mean? Flattening the curve means drawing out the epidemic. I think, okay, spoiler alert, everybody, this is a pandemic. <laughs> Finally, the uh, WHO acknowledged that. And uh, that was something we knew because there's disease virtually in every continent, except maybe I'm looking at the Johns Hopkins map. Mel, and the only place I don't see a red dot is Greenland. We, we, we should look into buying that. I wonder if anyone's thought of that. Um, um, anyhow, so the idea is you, you would like to not see this pandemic accelerate quickly and lead to the maximal number of infected people, cases, deaths, severe illness uh, in a short amount of time, because that's going to overwhelm our hospital system, our ability to surge. We like to flatten out the curve so that we have more time to build up the infrastructure to deal with this, to have the influenza, seasonal influenza uh, epidemic die off. We're already seeing influenza cases come down. It would be nice if we didn't have an epidemic of influenza at the same time we, we have a big spike in coronavirus cases. And then the, the longer we can draw out this uh, epidemic curve, the more time we have to develop vaccines, drugs, uh, learn how to protect ourselves in the community, protect the most vulnerable individuals such as the elderly in nursing homes. So that's, that is the strategy right now. It's no longer containment, which is which is, I think, what you know, some people are still trying to do and closing down travel and airports and things like that. It's more mitigation. Right. So that's an important concept that I think a lot of people uh, need to get their head around because a lot of the ER docs have noted, and even in the chat room, I can see here people saying like, if 1% mortality, we're talking, you know, a million people, that's a lot of people in ICUs, we can't handle that volume. So that's exactly what this is about. Of course, we can't handle that if it happens over a two month period. But maybe if we can spread this over six months, over nine months, it's, you've got a bit better chance of not having sort of people basically die in the door of the hospital versus uh, inside the hospital. So let's talk a little bit about um, testing then. Um, the test that's currently CDC, WH approved is a PCR test. And uh, I got a really good question yesterday. We've actually put it in the textbook. Trying to find um, what the sensitivity and specificity of that test is is almost impossible. It looks like, <laughs> from what I can find, about 75% sensitive PCR tests are usually pretty specific if they're not contaminated, but do you have any information on that for us? Um, I think, Mal, this is coming from a certain orifice because, you know, when we talk about um, uh, performance characteristics of tests, the first question you have to ask is what's the gold standard? What's right. the reference standard? And um, there's not a perfect reference standard for PCR. We, we do know that if you isolate uh, unique and conserved regions of viruses, those types of molecules, that these tests with laboratories that, you know, have a lot of experience and do them carefully have a very high accuracy. But then, you know, the question is, well, what are you comparing it against? Well, you, you can compare 
compare it against viral culture, and that helps for positive tests. But we know that PCR detects molecules uh, long after the virus can no longer survive, so they're not exactly equal. You can have negative controls, so people who have no symptoms, no exposure to the disease. You can have controls that have illness, but illness due to documented other viral infections, those can be controls. And then you can also compare against not only clinical illness, but eventually we will have antibody tests. So there's all sorts of ways to try to get at how accurate a PCR test is. But right now, we're, we're sort of... Um, uh, relying on the fact that if these tests are developed the way we usually develop PCR tests, they tend to be extremely accurate. And in the meantime, the type of um, performance testing that I talked about is going on. But I, but I don't think anyone can tell you exactly what the sensitivity and specificity is. And then if you want to make this really boring and drawn out, it depends on how you use the test. So if you, if you screen a large population of asymptomatic people to see if there's any asymptomatic COVID disease or transmission out there, you're going to um, exaggerate the number of false positive tests, even if a test is nearly perfect. And the opposite if you have a population that almost always has the disease. So a uh, short answer is, I think these it's believed that these tests are highly accurate, um, but um, you know it's early in the game and you know we, we don't have some of the background testing that would uh, make us feel more sure of that. If we just go to this slide for a second, um, I know a lot of people have been very frustrated by the US response. This is a quick slide uh, that shows how many tests per um, million people or 1,000 people, uh, per million right. people. So South Korea has been testing you know, nearly 4,000 people per million of population, the US five. This is changing very dramatically. We haven't had the test here. I think in California, they've only done a few hundred. That should change quickly as it appears that we are about to get a giant shipment from somewhere of millions of tests. I know in the chat room, a lot of people are frustrated because they either can't get the test or they're told when they ask for the test that um, they're not allowed to get it or the health department sort of cuts it off. So um, the test is not perfect and we can't get it right now. So there's a lot of frustrated people out there. Um, wow. So let's go uh, further forward here. And there's just one article I want to show here that says exactly what you said. If you then do the test, and this was one study in China that looked like it did in a pretty low prevalence population, they thought that they were having huge false positive rates. So right now we have a whole bunch of people that want to come and get tested, but we don't know the test characteristics and um, that's not the right thing to do. So what do, you, what do you say to people? I'm at home, I'm febrile, I think I might have this disease. Should I write it out? Should I come to the emergency department? Should I get tested if there were tests? Or should I just stay the hell home and only come into the hospital if I'm really sick? Yeah, well, I think we test for three general reasons. So the first reason we test, especially from our perspective as, as healthcare workers, is we test to protect. We test to know if somebody's infectious to us and and we are very important. It's not that you know um, we're more valuable in the human race, but at a time when there's there's health problems, uh, you have to protect healthcare workers. So we test to protect them. We test to protect the vulnerable, who are in our in the healthcare space, such such as elderly and people with comorbidities and all hospitalized people. So that's one reason we test. We test to do surveillance. Now, this could be done in a much more organized fashion, but uh, the political uh, sort of solution has been to now release these tests and encourage doctor judgment as to when to use that. That means that a lot of people are going to get tested, people for whom um, the result isn't really going to affect what we tell them to do very much, right? So, uh, but that will be our surveillance. It'll be wherever these tests can be done by whatever doctor decides whatever patient can get it, it will no longer be restricted to the definition of PUI. So we, we will get you know, more information on surveillance, that is how prevalent this disease is. It won't be as systematic as you might be able to do it scientifically, but it'll probably get us close to the answer. That type of information on surveillance informs public health authorities to make really, really difficult decisions on uh, how to uh, limit um, or increase social distance? Should we close schools? Should we mandate, like in Italy, that businesses close? Uh, things like this. These are really, really important decisions that have adverse consequences in both directions. So if you impose uh, social distancing restrictions, 
closing schools and things like that, um, and, and it's not necessary, then that wreaks havoc on the economy. It's particularly hard on the poor and parents who, who have uh, difficulty making sure that they can take care of their kids and support their households. On the other hand, if you, if you institute um, you know, mandatory separation and social controls and school closures too late, then it, then it doesn't work. So surveillance is really important to make those types of decisions. And then the last reason I think that we treat mal is, is to decide on treatment. You know, we debate this with like a Tamiflu treatment and testing for influenza. Um, right now there isn't a treatment that we know is effective uh, against uh, uh, COVID-19 disease, but there's some really promising candidates. And once that's the, that's the case, then that will be another reason to test. To your question, what do you do with the average person? I, I think if they want to test, uh, you know, the idea is to give it to them. We just don't want people to flood the emergency department who have respiratory disease, who aren't sick and don't really need our care and going to expose the most vulnerable who also need care in the emergency department. So if there is testing, it should be decentralized away from the hospital, out in the community, um, and, uh, and also best outside of doctor's offices and waiting rooms. Yeah, there's uh, an interesting thing that's occurring in England and um, other places around the world. I think it's starting to occur here, which is called drive-through testing. Basically, you drive up decentralized place away from the nursing home, away from the hospital, and you get the test done in your car. Uh, the first screening is actually done um, by things like Skype, where you call in, you talk to the doctor remotely or the nurse, and then they go, okay, this person should get a test. Then you go over and test them in their car, they drive home. So that kind of decentralized testing is, uh, makes sense for large populations. So uh, again, this is for healthcare workers. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of non-healthcare workers there, but the idea of not coming to the hospital when you're feeling a bit sick is a little bit strange, but there's not much we can do unless you're really sick. So if you're just a little sick, stay home is uh, what we're trying to tell people to do. Right. I mean, coronavirus increases the ante. I mean, we don't know what the mortality, case fatality rate is going to settle out as, and, and we're worried that it's much more than seasonal influenza. But, but guess what? It's not good to pass on your flu either, if that's what you got. So if you, feel, if you don't feel good, stay home. Stay away from people. Um, I guess if you're really curious, you can find out if you have COVID-19, but very soon it's, it's not going to matter because this is going to be everywhere. So um, a specific question about that before I go into CT scanning, which is another thing that people have been screening with theoretically. If I get this, if uh, tomorrow the air duct goes to work, gets coughed on, gets febrile, gets the disorder, then gets better, um, is it protected? Uh, is she protected? Can they then go back to work a couple of weeks later knowing that uh, they're not going to get it again? Is there any evidence that you can get this thing twice? Is it mutating fast enough that you could get it again? There was one report from China that maybe one woman had it twice what do you think? Hmm. I'm, I'm not sure that I know. I, I do know that um, there's some evidence that if you get the, the usual coronaviruses, that there is protective immunity specific to those strains. Uh, one of the theories as to why we're not seeing much disease in children is, it felt that, is it's felt that there may be some cross immunity uh, from past infections to the usual coronavirus that protects ch children against COVID-19. So that's interesting. I'm not aware that um, uh, recurrent infection after uh, you know, having one infection is clear, maybe that one case, I don't think we know. I think we can expect that there will be people who have COVID-19 infection who are also co-infected with influenza. Because every study be before this, looking at respiratory viral infections um, you know, during, during the winter season, has found, if you use uh, PCR testing, that it's not that uncommon for people, people to have evidence of two viral respiratory tract infections at, a, at the same time. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, and it's been controversial. One of the ID people I talked to said, um, if you come in, it looks like a viral syndrome, looks like influenza slash COVID, do the influenza test. If that's positive, that will significantly reduce your chance you have co-infection with COVID-19. Um, but you're saying that may not necessarily be true? I don't know. It's probably true. Statistically, I, I think um, if you have one documented identification of a respiratory viral infection, that makes the chance that you 
also have COVID-19, much, much less, you know, you know, but not zero right. is my point. Um, and that gets to some of the things that become perhaps more interesting in our own te testing that we use in the emergency department. There are, there are rapid PCR-based multiplex panels against all the common respiratory viral infections and we haven't used those because they are an increased cost. And although uh, many places they're run stat, that also adds uh, bedtime to our patients. But greater use of this test might allow us to uh, improve sort of the dispositions and what we can advise patients. Well, let me move on for a second. I want to try and get through this and then get back to the people who are chatting in their questions. Uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about was CT versus PCR. There is a couple of small studies out of China saying that CT scanning is this great screening tool that it can even be positive when the person is uh, initially negative on testing and then it becomes positive later. And I would just have a word of caution um, to people that are reading that literature thinking, well, instead of doing a test, I'll scan everybody. First of all, that's going to be ridiculously expensive. Um, you're not going to be able to scan millions of people, so that makes no sense at all. So I think this is taken out of uh, the context in which these were probably sick people that were in the the uh, hospitals that were admitted. And yes, if you are sick and in the ICU, the CT scan might have some very specific findings for COVID-19, but it's not a screening test in the way we're talking about screening. So please do not take home the message, I'm going to start scanning people instead of doing these tests. So now let's talk about triage, uh, Dave. So let's say, and despite what uh, you've said and lots of people have said, you have hundreds of thousands of people coming to the emergency department with uh, low-grade viral illness. Um, what is happening at UCLA? What's happening at all of you in terms of triage? What's uh, give some people some colour as to what's happening? Is there a nurse standing in the parking lot and uh, triaging people? What are you doing? Right, right. That is what we're doing at both both places there. And I think you've seen this. I'm sure many of you in your in your own hospitals, there's a sign out there or there's a place set up that says that catches people on their way before they come into the hospital or get into the standard emergency department waiting room. It says, hey, uh, if you've got respiratory symptoms, stop right here. And then either somebody comes out and meets them and triages them or there's a tent set up. You know, we're lucky enough in Southern California to have really good weather and guess guess where the air exchanges are best outside under a tent well you know in that nice weather so um, that those that's what people are doing they're again coming up with some system to separate those people who may be infectious from the vulnerable people who typically habitate the emergency department waiting room and that's also good, as you say, outside. Uh, my understanding of these viruses, they're covered in a little lipid layer. They're not, you know, it's not like um, some other viruses which are really hardy that sunlight and warmth and stuff can kill this. So we're hoping that um, this will be seasonal. But the idea of triage outside before they get in is what most people are doing. And then after that, um, internal uh, triage will then occur after that and um, unfortunately, like you say, it's easy for us to say in California, but if it's uh, 25 degrees below outside and snowing, that's a little harder. Right. So, now, you asked a little bit about the precautions at triage. Yeah. If you're putting nurses out there to do this sort of screening, and you have a, we all will soon have a line of people <laughs> with respiratory symptoms, um, the, uh, the guidance or the best evidence supports that that triage nurse get in full PPE. Mm -hmm. uh, what is that, make, that makes some sense, right? Um, because right now those patients aren't screened. Some of them will have the disease. It's a high-risk high type of practice. So that person who is closest and doing the screening, you know, should have an M95 mask, a face guard, the whole nine yards. Right. So that uh, yep. protection, let's go over it right now because this is respiratory aerosolized. N95 mask, good seal, no mustache, no beard, that kind of thing. There's some funny pictures from the CDC. I'll show you a little bit later about that. Um, eye protection because this can get through your mucous membranes of your eyes. 
and then, you know, gown glove mask, the whole thing. What we found in the Ebola virus and the simulation of Ebola virus is the time you get infected when you're wearing all that stuff is when you take it off. You've done all this and you're covered in virus. And if you don't take it off properly, then you can then infect yourself. So I suggest you um, go on the CDC website or check our um, textbook. There's links there to the process, the dance. It's a two-person dance to take this stuff off correctly so that you reduce the probability that you're going to infect yourself uh, from that stuff. So let's talk a little bit about um, intubation. Actually, here's the picture of the the various moustaches and facial hair that you can and cannot have. <laughs> and it's hysterical, and I love that the CDC did this. And uh, yeah, The Zorro is good, uh, but the Fu Manchu is bad, you know, this kind of thing. It's very, very fair. <laughs> now, we know from some other studies that the highest risk time in the emergency department for healthcare workers, or one of the highest risk times, is during intubation. We've had a lot of questions about this. So the patient comes in, they're really sick, and you've got a tube, then what can you do to reduce that probability? So uh, we are suggesting in the textbook chapter, after speaking to many experts, is put these patients in a negative pressure isolation room if you have one, if possible, um, that you intubate them as fast as you can with a few uh, intubation attempts as possible, so the best person, if you can get them in there. Um, make sure that there's as few people as possible in the room. Um, put uh, viral filters on all the connectors as much as possible. Use a video laryngoscope so that you're not going like this, trying to see the cords and inhaling all the virus, but you're a long distance away and use a video laryngoscope to try and put it in. And then, of course, after you've finished the procedure, you take off all the gowns and gloves in the correct manner. All of these things to try and mitigate that. We know that during SARS and MERS that a lot of the ICU staff and the emergency department staff um, actually became infected and many of them died and it's presumed in some of the epidemiologic studies it was during intubation was the highest risk time. So let's talk about vaccine status. Uh, we've been told by some people in power, oh, the vaccine, don't worry about it, it's going to be here in three months. And then other people at the CDC said there's not going to be a vaccine that's deployable at volume for at least 12 months to 18 months. What do you say, Dave? Um, that's what I'm reading too. I, I'm obviously I, I'm not a vaccine scientist. It, it's fairly, I think it's reasonably easy to develop uh, compounds that could be vaccines, but uh, then then testing them to make sure that they're safe and ultimately in trials to, to uh, demonstrate their effectiveness. That is what takes the longest amount of time. And I have also heard that um, whereas trials are starting very quickly. With some, with some of these vaccines, um, we won't have a licensed vaccine uh, for, you know, probably a year at best. So this is, again, the idea that if we can flatten that curve, uh, hopefully we can get a virus later on. We talked a little bit about the utility of antivirals. Um, there is a couple of possibilities there, and even chloroquine. Uh, in vitro apparently has some um, antiviral activity here, but we don't know if it's going to be that useful in the test tube it works. We don't know. I don't know. Um, people might be using this in very sick patients just to try it, but it'll be a while before we have um, any more information on that. So now let's get to some very specific questions that are coming up, and we're going to pimp you on this. And the first one that's come up a lot just today, Italy just reported 200 cases. Their mortality seems to be uh, very high. And so there's a lot of questions about, like, well, just how mortal is this disorder? The problem with the data from China is, frankly, uh, we don't know how much we can trust it. There's reason for them to downplay it. So although most of the evidence that we have we're um, talking about on the New England Journal and other places, it might be skewed. The concern is that what we're getting from Italy might be more reasonable, in which case it's a bit more frightening that the mortality may be significantly higher. In South Korea, my understanding, the mortality wasn't very high. So I think a lot of this is about how many people you've done the test on, uh, what's the denominator, and what the reporting is. So I think it's going to be a little bit confusing for a while as to what the exact mortality is. So I wouldn't freak out. I don't think it's Ebola, but it certainly seems to be worse than flu. Exactly where it's going to pan out, I'm not sure. Anything to say on that, Dave? Yeah, I mean, the tendency always at the beginning is to... Uh, predominantly test the sickest people who will have the worst prognosis. Where where testing has been uh, used the most in South Korea, so they have over two, about 200,000 tests, um, the case fatality rate is 0.6%. And so as you were implying, or maybe you were just saying, the more we test, then that fills out the denominator. And we know that this is a disease where... Um, 
it can it can only be a mild illness and actually an illness that doesn't even look like a lower respiratory tract infection. It may more look like just the common cold with sore throat and runny nose. Um, so I I would tend to believe the numbers that come from the places where there is uh, where they've done the most testing. Right. Yeah. Um, another question that comes up a lot is surface fomites and um, how this is spread. So the best evidence right now is that it's droplet spread. It's not like measles. When you've got measles, it sort of can float in the dust particles and stay for hours and hours. This is droplet spread. seems to drop pretty fast. There is an article which I was just given like 30 minutes before we got up here. It looks like it's um, pre-release perhaps for the New England Journal that suggests that this can live as a fomite on surfaces for up to 24 hours. But again, until that's published, I'm not sure. But um, what about usual coronavirus? If I have a normal cold and I sneeze onto my desk, how long does it live there? Hours, today's, or minutes? Mm, I don't. I don't know. I think. I think the information that you just imparted might give us a clue. But we do have some more information on when patients who have coronavirus infection when they're infectious. And part of the reason that this infection has spread so rapidly is it's been found that high levels of viable virus get excreted very early on in the after the onset of clinical symptoms when people are still feeling pretty well. And the peak viral excretion, this is live virus that can, can be grown on viral culture, peaks at about day five. But um, uh, you can get the virus, you can isolate the virus from the nose and throat during those first five days at very high levels and before people feel that sick. So they might be out and about and they may not be coughing much. They may just have a little tickle in their throat. Um, then it's found that the level of the virus comes down after a peak at about five days and it and is nearly and is mostly gone by 10 days. So what we're, what we're learning is, yes, it's dangerous. It can spread very early on. That explains the dynamics of the pandemic. But uh, patients themselves uh, may be safe uh, in terms of not being infectious after the 10th day from the onset of their symptoms. Yeah. And so, again, this is why this idea of people sort of going to your quarters and staying away from other people for a while is, is the best thing we can do to slow um, this spread. Um, a couple of questions about um, one here that says, look, I'm seeing lots of people with fever and lots of people with cough. I've done no testing. It sure sounds like coronavirus to me. But that also sounds like the common cold. It also sounds like flu. And that's uh, the difficulty we've got. One of the theories going around right now is that the vector for this is kids. Because um, they're not getting clinically sick, they may be running around and uh, spreading the virus. And there hasn't been, as I know to date, a lot of testing specifically in sort of asymptomatic kids in primary schools to see how uh, common it is there. And it's a little frustrating with all this because we're so early. We just don't know the epidemiology there, but I'm sure that will happen. One of the specific questions people had clinically was, what about if you've got an asthma patient? Um, should you be giving them nebulizers in the emergency department and spraying that virus everywhere? How should we deal with that? Yeah, I th I'm glad you brought that up because there's a lot of things that we do that can precip precipitate uh, people expelling uh, respiratory dry droplets with um, COVID-19 virus. So, um, uh, BiPAP. I don't. Th I, I would really discourage use of BiPAP for a pneumonia patient in general. This is not like CHF, where you can do some things and reverse the patient uh, uh, from their course toward, towards needing intubation. I, I think if you have someone in respiratory distress, instead of BiPAP, you're going to be much more quickly going to intubation and mechanical ventilation, like you described. Um, I think handheld nebulizers. I mean, these, there have been clinical studies, right, Mel, for decades that have compared the efficacy of, of nebulizers versus just giving the patient an MDI with a spacer. And as far as I know, unless there's something new that's come along, we haven't been able to demonstrate that uh, the nebulizers are any more effective. Um, they, they are more dangerous in terms of aerosolizing um, infectious respiratory secretions. So I, I think... Um, I would try to move away from the use of nebulizers routinely because they're risky. Or if you're going to use them, then the people who deliver them 
you know, need to be in full PPE and probably in a airborne isolation space as well. Um, you know, there's kids and adults where, you know, we want to look at the back of their throat and we use a tongue blade and they gag and cough. And I don't think, I don't think that's a practice that we're going to want to encourage during, during this pandemic. Um, so I would re really think about how much you, you need to see more as opposed to just having the patient open their mouth as best they can for you and make, making some treatment decisions that may be perhaps a little bit more empirical than they, they would be in other times. This has also come up with uh, intubating patients. Scott Weingart has a great um, podcast on this. Again, there's a link in our chapter um, on the Encrypt podcast about what we like to do right now is lots of high-flow nasal O2 as we're intubating patients. That too probably is very good at aerosolizing all of this in somebody who's probably got a high viral load. So uh, probably not the right thing to do, especially since we're not sure that it really improves intubation. That's the kind of thing maybe we should do um, less of. Um, I'm going to try and read another one here. What do you make of reports coming out of Italy today? We talked a little bit about that. Italy had a 200 new uh, cases reported again. Be very uh, cautious about how you read these new cases like it's a, this disease is exploding. It's probably mostly just about testing. And I think you're going to see that in the US in the next few weeks. As we get this test, lots of tests are going to be positive and it's going to look like, oh my gosh, everybody's got it. Um, so we have to be very careful about that. But they are reporting a lot of pneumonia, a lot of intubations and um, some ECMO cases there. And again, it's hard to get a feel about exactly what's going on. If there are any Italian docs um, in the ICU or in the emergency departments working and you can hop on the chat, um, give us your experience, that would be great. We use that a lot uh, during the um, prior ep epidemics. There's a question here about Emtala and the parking lot. So Dave, uh, you ran the emergency department there for decades at all of you. Is it okay to triage people in the parking lot in the US when it comes to Emtala? Um, I haven't really thought about that. That's, that's a great question. Um, uh, I, I would, I would, you know, this is a public health advisement, so I think you'll be fine. Uh, but you know, you, wh whether you, um, you know, screen and, uh, establish that the person is stable or stabilize them, um, starting in the parking lot or in your standard emergency department, I think you will still be expected to meet that standard. But I, I think under these circumstances, if, if you do that in a makeshift shift respiratory triage screening first, I'm, I'm sure you'll be fine. Um, a lot of people are saying this is going to overwhelm their hospitals, particularly in smaller hospitals. They've got one or no negative uh, isolation rooms. Do you have any advice about what to do under those circumstances? Do you just push the beds as far away from each other as possible? Do you put some people outside <laughs> the parking lot? What do you do? Yeah. Um, no, no, you put the... A person who's suspected in a private room, and and you, and you use PPE to go in and out. And you know, again, like we emphasize, this is an illness that is transmitted primarily through respiratory droplets, not not airborne, not just just breathing the regular air. So that's that's still a very good precaution. We're just extra cautious about this. Um, and influenza, although it is the classic. You know, a respiratory virus infection transmitted by droplets. There, it has been shown that there there is some airborne spread of influenza and the potential for people to acquire it. So instead of taking chances with this disease that may have six times the case fatality rate of flu, um, you know, the infection control recommendations are very conservative. But just separating someone, closing the door, putting them in a re regular private room is quite a bit of protection. Right. Uh, some other questions then. Um one specifically, a pregnant ER doc asking, what about pregnancy? I have heard nothing about this. We know that kids, little kids, seem to be doing fine. There's no reported deaths as yet under the age of nine. I have no idea in pregnancy. Do you have any word yeah, on this? Yeah, there, there have been reports in pregnant women. And the fear is, is that, you know, pregnancy is sort of a mild immunocompromising state to allow this, you know, half abnormal, lanogenic, chromosomally different person grow in your body. And so we do see some opportunistic infections emerge in pregnancy. It's a, we, we see pathogens that we don't see in normal people like listeria and things like that. Um, influenza 
is more severe in pregnancy and postpartum. So I think there there is a concern about coronavirus in pregnancy. However, the good news is that um, there there ha- have been cases of pregnant women who have gotten coronavirus, and they appear to handle the infection well, like young healthy people would, and and not uh, have any more adverse consequences, at least so far from what we learned, because they're pregnant. There also has not been cases observed of vertical transmission um, of a pregnant patient who's infected to their newborn child. There has been transmission otherwise to very, very young children from the mother, but uh, uh, that did not appear to be vertical transmission. So that's what we know. So far, so good, and good luck on your pregnancy. <laughs> you so, might want to might want to not take a cruise um, yeah, yeah, for, <laughs> during idea. that last part. <laughs> so let's talk about travel then, because a number of big conferences, um, emergency medicine conferences, and um, Facebook, and all these other people are stopping their conferences. Uh, Semper just a few days ago canceled their conference. So. Um, what do you think about this? Um, one of the arguments is, first of all, you're going to take uh, a thousand ER docs that have been out working, seeing lots of patients. <laughs> if there's ever going to be a group of people that's going to have some number of people that have coronavirus, it's going to be an ER conference. Should we be shutting this down right now? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I look at it, you know, from the individual who might go to a conference. And I, I know, Mel, your first question would be, well, who's speaking? <laughs> um, <laughs> another would be like, well, is this something that I need to do? And if it's not something that you really need to do, you know, then you can look at it two ways. It's a very personal decision. The absolute risk to you is small. I mean, it's small that you'll acquire an infection. If you get an infection, it's small that you won't just you know, have flu symptoms and it'll be gone. So the absolute risk to an individual like like you and me and our colleagues who are listening is tiny. But then, you know, you get to this whole idea of social responsibility. So for every less case there is, um, you know, then we flatten that epidemic curve. That means we give the systems more time to adapt. We give people who are not infected the opportunity to benefit from drugs that are discovered or for the population to eventually protect it for, from vaccine. The less infected people, even if they're healthy and get minor illness, the less vulnerable elderly people will die. So if you don't need to go to that conference, I mean, there's plenty of ways to learn. Maybe not this hour, but other hours, I know there's some valuable educational information that comes across. So you have to decide for yourself. You know, but people, Mel, are going to vote with their feet. And I think you're already starting to see, you know, basketball games where, you know, nobody's in the stands. And, you know, and that's, and that's good, not only for people to protect themselves, but, again, for every less healthy person that... I, Requires this, there's less chance that you know your grandpa in the nursing homes going to die from coronavirus. Yeah, I would summarize that the uh, very similar way, which is if you're old, if you've got uh, underlying pulmonary disease, this is not a time to go to the basketball game. This is a time to stay at home and to watch the TV. And um, for the rest of us, we can risk stratify ourselves in that. What's the need for the travel? Um, what's my underlying pathology? Um, and uh, sort of risk stratifying that way. You know, I think a lot of people are confused, like, is the government being um, uh, overly cautious or undercautious? And I heard a really good ID doc, and I can't remember his name, but he said, well, just tell me which way you want to get this wrong. If I lock down society and do lots of social isolation and close down everything, I'm going to tank the stock market, I'm going to really affect the uh, community, and I'm going to affect people's ability to make money and do all the stuff, but I can significantly flatten the curve, substantially do that, like they did in China. They took 60 million people and said, you're not going anywhere, and we have the guns to make sure that doesn't happen. So you can do that extreme, or the other extreme is just let it run its course, but if you do that, um, you'll get this big explosion of cases and you'll overwhelm the healthcare system, and you've got to try and find some balance between those two, and there's no right answer. There's a, there's going to be a lot of criticism both ways. You did too much, you didn't do enough, but um, I thought it, it made a lot of sense to me. What you're seeing here is just tell me which way to do it wrong, and I think sometimes you'll see it swing from, well, let's just let this see how bad it is, and then when it looks bad, there might be a swing a little bit too much uh, the other way. But that's the problem. You, you can't do both 
and all things at once. You just have to decide. There are uh, cause and effect both ways. Yeah, I, you know, uh, these are really, really difficult decisions. And uh, even people who would be, you would think, ex experts in epidemiology, public health, virology, no one knows. We're, we're all learning as we go here. And there's some really critical decisions, like you say. And you can, you can make a mistake by uh, restricting things too much early, um, which has consequences, real consequences to people. Um, and you can make a mistake of uh, trying to uh, institute controls too late. So uh, these are very, really difficult decisions. Um. The other thing that people are asking is, uh, when will this stop? Um, I've got uh, travel that I'm going to do three months from now. Should I book that or should I cancel it? So we know from flu, we know from uh, the cold season that it is seasonal, that when the temperatures get warm, the virus tends to die and uh, this is protective. I think we expect that this is going to be a little seasonal, but what do you think? No. No? Um, there's, there's many, many examples of uh, viral illnesses, including influenza, which aren't seasonal. You guys remember H1N1, swine flu, you know, a little bit of de deja vu, and hopefully the, the ending is the same. But, you know, Mel, we were, uh, at all of you, we reported the very first case of H1N1 when it came to the United States through California. But remember the first reports, they said 50% of the patients in Mexico City were being hospitalized in the ICU. And, um, and then when all was said and done, and remember there was a vaccine and lines for the vaccine, but by then the infection was over. But it, that influenza epidemic, pandemic, occurred during the summer months. So and then it, by the end of it, it turned out to have a lower case fatality than usual seasonal flu. You know, we can only hope that, you know, COVID-19 sort of goes that direction, but it doesn't matter because even with a low case fatality rate or maybe just case fatality in people who are really old and really sick, if 15% of the world's population gets that infection, then a lot, a lot of people die. So and, I can't feel better about uh, delaying my travel to the summer because the ultraviolet light's going to kill the bug. You just destroyed my yeah. summer. Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't know. Uh, uh, you know, I, I try to stay up and listen, listen to the best experts at predicting these things. Um, I like Mike Osterholm. He's a public health infectious disease guy uh, in Minnesota. So you should try to search him. He, he's a really good voice. And so, some people, I don't want to appear too cynical, you know, like uh, CDC folks who I work alongside and they're awesome. Remember, they're federal employees, so they may not be able to say everything that they feel is true. But um, uh, I like Mike Osterholm, so if you guys are interested in f following a, you know, a very astute and um, uh, uh, frank ex expert, as expert as anybody can be, uh, search him. He's very good. I've got another one. Amish Adaya is uh, from John Hopkins. Uh, that map that we showed that I check daily is part of the group that uh, put that together. He's trying to sort of dampen down the hysteria a little bit. He's much more worried about uh, the social consequences of people losing their minds over this thing than the virus itself. But he does um, note that he does think it's going to be about, like as you've said, probably about a 0.6% mortality, which is significantly higher than flu, that in the US alone that could be 800,000 or more uh, deaths. It's going to be pretty bad. But if we can just do the things that we've been talking about, flatten that curve, spread this over time, develop antivirals, get a vaccine, um, it's not going to be... This is not the pandemic that we're all worried about. The 50% mortality as infectious as, as measles pandemic. This is a really bad flu season that's really bad and we should treat it in that fashion and that means um, doing all the things that we're talking about. One uh, specific question that's come up, we've heard about the hand washing, I don't think we need to talk about that, but how long can you wear an N95 mask? If you've got a 12-hour shift, does that thing last for 12 hours or should I be replacing it every few hours? Any ideas? I have no idea. Well, there's a push for consolidating um, infectious COVID-19 patients. And part of the justification is kind of something you referred to before, which is that the greatest risk of 
a healthcare worker acquiring it when they are already using PPE is when they take off the equipment, right? And so if you if you can have a ward or a hospital uh, dedicated to the care of those patients, then those healthcare workers can keep on their PPE uh, the whole time. And I don't know the answer to you know what's safest in terms of you know uh, you know changing it out and things like that. But I, I think the implication is that um, unless there's a break in the PPE, that you can you can just keep wearing it. Yeah, if they get wet or if you tear it, of course, that's not going to be very effective. Um, look, I think uh, we're having some uh, technical issues with the stream. But we have many thousands of people here. Dave, do you want to have any sort of closing thoughts? Um, we will do this again um, if we feel uh, the need to um, as this changes rapidly as we get more information. So this is not one undone. But any uh, closing thoughts for the particularly the clinicians out there that I've had at least today 20 people call me worried about going to work. Uh, all the things that they should be doing to reduce yes. their probability of getting infected? Yeah, okay. So some good news. So there was a group that published their experience uh, from Hong Kong um, during this first month where they had 1,200 uh, patients come through the emergency department and into the hospital who were suspected of, of COVID-19. And of, of that they had 43 who were infected. And they followed very much the standard infection control procedures that are recommended that we've discussed a little bit today. And um, if, if you follow those procedures, what they found was no healthcare worker acquired the infection. So that told me the things that we're doing, the things that we're recommending, if you follow them and you're careful and you take your time and you think through when you need to put those on and how carefully you take them off and you wash your hands and do all those things that we're talking about, which, which, you know, is a little bit different than our routine, but absolutely something that everybody can do, then your risk of acquiring the infection is really low. And as we've talked about, even if you get the infection, you know, the risk that you're going to have a bad out health outcome since you're, you're generally, uh, you know, a healthy workforce is is also very low. So, I mean, maybe that can quell some of the fear. Um, I, you know, I think we're at a really special place in time, Mal. Like, will COVID-19, or maybe it already is, is it the most important disease of this century? I mean, maybe it will be. Or maybe this will be like a really good drill to prepare us, you know, for something worse ahead. Maybe we'll learn that higher education doesn't have to be so expensive or, or that people can telecommute. Uh, or maybe we'll learn how to develop social systems that watch out for the elderly during any type of threat to their health. So, you know, maybe there's a few good things that will come from this. Um, I remember that I was a firsthand witness to the discovery of the most important disease of the last century, which was AIDS when I was training at UCLA. And, um, you know, yes, this is a frightening period. And, you know, we're worried for ourselves and we're worried for the people we take care of and we're worried for our relatives and friends. But it's also an, an epic moment and one that we, sh we should all, um, you know, try to appreciate and learn from. I think that's a great place to end. I want to thank Professor Talon for spending the time here again. We're not one and done. Uh, that was a really hopeful um, review of what happened in Hong Kong. And I have heard that same thing. This is a good drill. This is serious. This is for real. A lot of people are going to get hurt, but um, potentially this could be a lot worse. And let's get our systems in place for the next one because it is inevitable that there will be a next one. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, we'll do another one of these soon if we need to. I'm going to post this uh, so that your friends and colleagues can watch it, and we'll post it uh, as soon as we can after the event finishes. Thanks again, Dave. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Be everybody. careful out there. Wash your hands. Put your masks on. Herbert out. Don't touch your nose. Don't touch my nose, that's for sure. Yeah, only on the screen. I'm touching your nose right now.